Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics. So I'll give him this, the straightforward one, which is uh, Amos Winbush III is a dear friend of mine, and he's the co-founder and, uh, of Forbes 8 and the CEO of AW3 Media Group. Uh, which if you didn't know how that how that's spelled, you can see it behind him um, on his virtual screen that he's super excited about. Uh, with that, Amos, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, why you're so excited about that logo, and uh, we'll kick, kick things off. Um, I'm not really that interesting. Uh, I, uh, I like long walks on the beach and uh, a nice pina colada every once in a while. Um, no, uh, I'm, a, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love innovation. I think innovation drives um community um and is is key to you know relationships um so yeah my first company CyberSynx, was all about keeping connected to your data and the new company aw3 that i launched several years ago is all about uh advancing um into your your calling and your purpose um so how do we do that within aw3 we create compelling content and we release it with robust technology around the world um, in a format that allows people to access it anywhere, which is on your mobile device. So uh, long story short, um, my passion is creating access to opportunity. My vocation happens to be technology entrepreneur. Um, you know, sooner or later there will change, but as of right now, um, that's my focus. And I'm really excited to sit down and chat with all of you. Hopefully that was good, Scott. And you're on mute. It turns out that I say, I just said a lot of nice things about you, but now I'm just gonna move on. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, we will, we'd love to engage everybody. I'm gonna ask a couple of preamble questions and we'll dive into some of the ones that we got. But I, I, I wanna talk a little bit about, about your background. You talk about cyber sinks and AW3, but you have taken a very different approach than a lot of U.S.-based entrepreneurs in that you, you, you from the outset thought globally, and in particular um, in, I don't know what the words of the day are, uh, you know, developing markets like Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I'd just love for you to chat, just talk a little bit about like why you chose those markets, what your experiences were like, and, um, and sort of where the opportunity lies there. Because I think it's something that uh, we don't think about enough. And so I'd love for you to just share a little bit about your experience there. Yeah, I think uh, the reason why I chose, um, or I fully engaged and they chose me and um, we chose each other with international markets is because typically when, you know, US-based companies or westernized companies create a technology, they think about the consumer being Western um, and they completely forget that the world has over 7 billion people. Um, and I wanted to create a technology, a solution with the intentions that everyone around the world had the exact same problem. And that was 
not having access to your data because of some catastrophic event to your mobile device. And this was in 2007 before iCloud, before Google Sync, before any of those platforms were in existence. Um, and I knew that with the proliferation of smartphones hitting the market that uh, they would eventually go into these markets outside of the States and outside of Europe. And if there was no solution to support these individuals who overwhelmingly use their mobile devices for everything, it could be really detrimental, not only for their lives, but for the community as a whole. Um, so the intentions was always to uh, take um, a product Within, with, the, with the focus of uh, finding uh, ambassadors all around the world to use it. My experience in international markets uh, was really tough. Um, you know, here I am uh, not knowing any of the regulatory, you know, uh, concerns um, and operating in a market that I had never even visited. Um, you know, but I'm a quick study. I hired a really great team, um, a law firm by the name of Johnson Bryan, who really supported the mission that I had with uh, CyberSyncs and um, helped me guide every step and every decision that we made um, uh, for the success of the company. What I didn't realize is I never thought CyberSyncs was successful. I didn't, I didn't actually realize the company was successful until my fourth company. Um, so when I was in it, my intentions were always to create a pathway to bring people into community authentically. And that was through, you know, mobile. So you, you, you extended from there and, and I want to, I'm going to come back to AW3 and some of the stuff that you've done around thinking about the mobile device as a leapfrogging technology for a lot of these markets. But before we go there, um, you weren't always a tech entrepreneur. No. Prior to CyberSyncs, you had some other passions that you pursued. And so my the, one, one of the questions, and it's kind of two, I'm gonna break it into two parts because I think that in order for you to answer the, the question that was asked, the background will be helpful for everyone. So I'd like you to share a little bit about what you were doing before CyberSyncs and what your experience was there, and then talk a little bit about how you how you made the leap into uh, into starting that company. Like, what was that transition like? What resources did you use? But first, just give a little bit of background about your your pre CyberSyncs career. Yeah. So pre CyberSyncs, I uh, was a singer songwriter. I moved from Shreveport, Louisiana, in two thousand and three. Um, to pursue a career in music and struggled for a really, really long time. And um, I was blessed enough to have an, uh, an entertainment attorney at Greenberg Charik who let me crash on his couch for a pretty good you know, amount of time in order to save up some money um, in order to move. Um, and through that relationship with my law firm, they introduced me to a fellow producer who was roommates with John Legend um, and good friends with John Legend and Ryan Leslie. And uh, his name is David Liang. And David and I, um, I received a call from David and he said, hey Amos, I have this project. It's called Shanghai Restoration Project. And I would love for you to be a part of it. Now I had just gotten over the flu. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if I wanna do that, man. I, my voice is kind of shaky. 
But nevertheless, I went into his homemade studio, jumped in the shower and started singing um, this song called Babylon of the Orient. And little did I know it would be uh, one of the biggest things that I'd ever done in my music career. Um, it was uh, downloaded on SanDisk MP3 player or preloaded. And for those who are of a particular age like me, you know, uh, MP3 players were pretty dope back then. Um, so my song was one of 10 and um, lo and behold, it sold a gazillion, you know, copies and I received royalties from it. And it turns into like this, this cult following. Um, and you can go to YouTube and watch people doing like, you know, choreography routines to the song. Um, and in 2008, the Beijing Olympics placed it in their opening credits. Um, so I was able to like save up some money and through the process of saving up that money, um, you know, and being a singer songwriter, I was going to use it to, you know, do my first album, my first CD. Uh, and I was in the recording studio and my mobile phone crashed. And maybe three weeks before my mobile phone crashed, party and he and I exchanged information and um uh oh speaking of crash I was devastated so I'm like yo how am I going to get this big <laughs> I don't even know my mom's cell phone number so the reason why I created cyber can you guys hear me am I Amos we lost you there for a for a minute you're you're froze your face is frozen you're it, still a good look for you but I don't know if it's uh, if you're stuck somewhere. You there? I don't know if you can. Is it is it my internet? Yeah, I think everybody else seems to be good, but you're you're better now. All right, cool. I hadn't moved. So who's who's who? What famous person did you put in your contacts before it crashed? Russell Simmons. Um, the you know the the famous. Uh, I think. I think it's interesting that you prioritize losing Russell Simmons phone number over you didn't know your mom's cell phone number. I'm going to, I just want to emphasize that so I can take that particular clip and send it to her. <laughs> I'm sure she will find that particularly interesting as well, <laughs> given the fact that they were like bankrolling my existence in New York city. Um, um, so what, so, so you, you lost your phone. What happened? And I was just frustrated and, uh, I thought of an idea. I actually had a dream of the idea of creating this technology that would wirelessly synchronize your contact information. Didn't know how to do it. It had never been done before. Um, but I put an ad on Craigslist when it was free. Because you know, now Craigslist, it's like $25 to put an ad on. Put an ad on Craigslist and interviewed a gazillion people and found a software engineer. And that was how it all started. You know, I blurred out everything that I needed in the technology and he kind of put it into a structure and we started the company from that. That's awesome. So I, I, I wanted everybody to understand that background because the question we got was in those first few years, uh, what, how did you sort through the resources to support you? What, what resources did you find most helpful? which which where were the dead ends like there's a lot there's a way more here now than there was 10 12 years ago but 
you know, what advice do you have to somebody who's just starting out about how to filter out all the all the noise and and find the the signal that's most relevant to you? Yeah, even now there's so much noise in the marketplace and. The problem that I was running up against in 2007 is that there was no startup community in New York City. There was none. So there were no communities that you can tap into. And lo and behold, we created that just by, you know, finding each other. Um, and once we found each other, then we were able to like book these small bars uh, and these karaoke spots. And that's when we would have like these open mic nights to pitch each other's ideas off of off of the group, um, but resources were limited. Uh, most of the information that was in the marketplace either came from reporters um, or other you know, one-sided entities that focused so much on the end result. Oh, they raised a gazillion dollars. Okay, yeah, but what did they do before they raised that money? Um, and it stayed there and it was so one-dimensional that the way that I learned was falling, getting super bloody, getting back up, trying something different, falling, getting super bloody, getting back up. And it was trial by error. And it was really, really difficult. And nobody knew anything. Like We just didn't know anything. And even now, when you think about it, the reason why I started AW3 Media um, and the Entrepreneur Network is so that there could be a cohesive platform where people could come and see real life experiences from entrepreneurs on the ground at every stage, not just from the perspective of, oh, you raise money, therefore you are successful. No, it doesn't work that way. So I, I, I wanna talk a little bit about your, um, you, your Craigslist adventure. You found somebody, a software engineer. Did, did they become a co-founder? This is a question from one of our, from our audience. Did they become a co-founder and if, how did you make that decision? Yeah, so I made that decision by giving them equity. I didn't give them the co-founder title because I didn't even know anything about the co-founder title. Um, but I gave, uh, I gave him a substantial percentage of equity, more than 10% in the company. Um, and what also was really tough uh, in, that, in those early days is because there was nothing to gauge my experience on, I was really territorial about the idea. So I led from a place of fear and fear also led me to have an overbearing, um, um, you know, management style, leadership style that was very micromanager-esque. And, you know, one day my, my team came to me and said, Amos, like, we're definitely afraid to talk to you because we don't know what you're gonna say and we're afraid that you won't listen to us. And that started a process of me really humbling myself and removing all of the baggage and the damage that I had accumulated over time to get to a place where I could be vulnerable um, and listen and hear to have a relationship with my team. But until that happened, it was, it was really difficult. Yeah. That's cool. Thank you. Um, I'll keep an eye on the questions. So if you've got questions, please, please post them. Uh, so the next one is, is uh, more oriented towards your, your background. You talked about being, you know, born in Shreve or lived, grown up in Shreveport, Louisiana, and then moving to New York. And um, so there's a question about the current context of being a tech CEO. So you're as a black founder, you know, what, what changes, if any, have you seen in the tech industry in the last, you know, two, three months, 
that you think will stick and have a long-term impact? So have you seen any changes that, that you believe are heading in the right direction uh, from a, from a pe person of color founder type or under underestimated folks? What, what changes do you see that are, have any been made? And if so, which ones do you think will last? Yeah, I think we are currently in the pseudo community phase of um, the evolution of where we are. It's, I think the, the, the part that is heartening is that there are a lot of um, individuals talking about it. And that is, that's cool and that's great. But we've been talking about it for a while. And in order for us to move out of pseudo community, we have to talk about it and then get really, really uncomfortable in changing it. Um, and we see some changes happening slowly but surely. There are more executives coming on, board of directors. And the problem that I have with C-suite onboarding currently uh, with the tech world is that um, because of this hyper uh, sensitivity toward uh, inclusion, you see a lot of black and brown uh, leaders going into chief diversity officer positions. And that's cool and that's great, but those positions uh, don't have any power. And more importantly, they shouldn't be aggregated to one particular person. It should go across the entire leadership. Um, you know, I think it is, it's a fallacy to believe that one person can change a culture in a company. They just can't. Um, it, it, it comes with everyone bringing their authentic self every single day to the table and the other person saying, oh, I never realized that. It makes sense. I don't understand it, but can you help me walk through it? Um, so I am hopeful that those pseudo community conversations can move into authentic communication uh, or authentic community with, um, you know, with time. Um, and a lot of pressure from the public to say, I'm no longer okay being uncomfortable in your comfortable environment. I think that's that's key. I want to I want to pile on one thing there, and then I, I have a question about your coming back to your co-founder. Um, there's a there's a capacity thing. So I th on your chief diversity officer role, I think one of the things that that they've got to be enfranchised to actually build capacity to support the rest of the organization, not just a, like you said, a single person, because it is on everybody. And I know as a CEO, I've wrestled with. You know, we want to, to we want to distribute the load among all of us to take our own responsibility on and and do and at the same time there are there's work to be done that everybody else is everybody's got a day job and one of the things that I've been sensitive to is as you pointed out not only might they get promoted in that role but then there's oh well let's create a committee right and we'll have a bunch of people to join the diversity task force and and of course who shows up it's a bunch of the black and brown people and they're looking around and going like i'm i, I already lived this life like I, can we have some you know how do we have some help here yeah. um so it's I, i'm curious about to your point you know that pseudo community how do you what are strategies that we can take to kind of invite more people into that dialogue in an authentic way? And, and you know, have you seen things that are working or things to avoid? Yeah, I think the invitation is always open. Uh, the invitation has always been there. It's um, now actually requiring uh, voices who have the power to change the structure um, to be at those, uh, in those chairs. Um, 
it is uh, it, it is a process that you know yes everyone has their own day job but in that capacity of how you execute your roles and your responsibility the intentions behind you in every decision that you make or even every decision that you contemplate making should be does this support the diverse landscape of my consumers and if my consumer pool looks very different from my executive pool then that's the first signal that something is off and companies then have a responsibility leadership middle management associates have a responsibility to speak up and not call out i believe that calling out puts people on defense you know in the defense mode but call people in to having a robust conversation that can be ugly and setting that expectation in the very beginning this isn't going to be pretty this is going to be really uncomfortable i allow you to make mistakes please allow me to make mistakes. My intentions are true, even though my words may not reflect that. Can you help me, you know, evolve? We should be having those conversations at the refrigerator in the office, by the water cooler, outside of the bathroom, wherever it is. There's no right place or wrong place to have those conversations because what you want for your life is what I want for my life. I want to be heard. I want to be seen. I want to be valued. I want to be honored. Um, and I want to be called into my better self. And if my relationships aren't doing that for me, then there's something wrong with me. So those are the, the introspective looks that we have to do. And those are the external conversations that we have to have. I really like the, the construct of, of calling in. There's something about, especially when you're working, when you're with your colleagues, it's like we're, we're, we're together to accomplish something together. Let's, let's, let's recognize that and, and, you know, engage each other as opposed to, you know, calling people out. Cause it's, as you said, it puts people on the defensive and it doesn't get us where we need to go. Yeah. I'm smart. So this is going to be a very difficult question for you to, to answer. Um, and as you know, I never use sarcasm. So uh, we have a question from one of our audience members here. Um, uh, as a woman entering in tech, I feel like I'm often discounted or not taken seriously. Did you have that same experience when you were starting out? And if so, do you have any advice to overcome it? Yes and yes. Um, the expectation is that you should always think that when you go into a room that you are the underdog. Um, and your job at that particular point is to shake up the environment because once you're in the room, you are in the room. You know, and oftentimes, you know, you don't have a seat at the table, but that's okay. Pull up a stool. And then if no one is acknowledging you sitting on that stool, stand on the stool. If no one's acknowledging you standing on that stool, stand on the table. Because as long as you have space, to articulate what is truly in your heart and to help that organization move forward, it's valuable. You know, it's, it's, it's important. And your perspective adds to the bottom line. 
it's a new viewpoint that someone may not have thought about. It's, it's a different way to look at a problem that could bring a solution for generations of individuals. And, you know, I, I, you know, the way that I've walked into those rooms, oftentimes in the early part of my career was, I was just happy to be in the space. Oh, I'm happy to be in the space. No one's talking to me. Okay, yeah, who cares? That changed, that shifted to me being in the room and then sucking up as much of the oxygen as I possibly could to require the people in the room to look at me, to talk to me, to engage with me. And if, um, and if that didn't happen, then I was just in the wrong space, in the wrong season. So to, I'm going to pile on there a little bit. You talked about, hey, you know, you got in the room, so take advantage of the fact that you're there. What blockers or uh, extra hurdles did you have you observed or experienced in just being able to get in the room? Oftentimes, if you have, let's say, let's take this for example, if you have a house and the real estate agent says it has four bedrooms, three and a half baths, right? And then you walk into that space and there's a door that doesn't have a doorknob. You see the door, it's part of the listing for the home, but you're unable to access it. And because you're unable to access it, you don't know what's going on behind it. You know it's there. That's the same thing that, you know, uh, many people of color go through and uh, especially, you know, when you take a business, you know, uh, look at it. And even if you, you know, talk about minorities across the space, uh, gender or people of color. Uh, yeah, we know that the conversations are happening, um, but that door doesn't have a knob on it. And as much as I knock, it's not going to open. So the question is, how do you get into those rooms and into those spaces? Um, and, and ultimately, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. There are, you know, there are situations where I'm still unable to get into those rooms, but it doesn't stop me from, you know, busting down the wall and building my own access point. Um, it just causes, it, it requires more time and it requires more resources. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible. So hopefully that answers that, that question. I think, I think it gets, it definitely gets at it. I'm going to play into it a little bit. We did have a question come in that's related uh, and I, I'm going to deal with the persistence issue. So starting a company is already hard. You've got, you know, uh, uh, an imbalance um, to say it gently, but there's sort of an, it, there's a systemic racism and, and a bias that's baked into the journey. How, how do you balance like, overcoming all of that stuff in your daily life and in your startup life and, and not just give up. Right? What, 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 what have you used or what things have you found for yourself to kind of keep you going um, so that you can uh, you know, pl power through? That's a really deep question. Um, I think early on in my career, it was the, the newness of it, the discovery was what kept me going and um, not knowing, um, you know, my limitations uh, was a driver. Um, and then from there, 
what kept me going was the discovery of me. Um, it was uh, the discovery of who I am, what I'll accept, and ultimately how I viewed the world that I walked in. And what kept me going at that particular point wasn't the money or the influence or the access or any of those external things. It was calling and purpose that drove me to keep going. And calling and purpose doesn't care if you're happy. It has nothing to do with you being happy. It has to do with you walking in your authentic truth. And if you're able to walk in your authentic truth, then you're able to find purpose in those difficult times. And I was able to just to find purpose in those difficult times, which kept me going. Um, and then lo and behold, you'll get a person that says, I was really down, but I saw something you said or something you wrote and it brought me up. And those little small wins allow you, you know, that extra push to just keep going. Uh, it's uh, th There is something about those tiny things and being tuned into them and saying, you know what, I might have had a, a, you know, a terrible day or things didn't go what I wanted to or whatever, but this good thing happened. <laughs> and so there's something about just carrying that little, that little light with you to the next day uh, can pay, pay off. Um, I'm going to turn another question um, that came in. I'm going to summarize it a little bit because I think the core of it is um, uh, I think you'll have a point of view of. So you mentioned that you were, I'm going to use, these aren't the, your words, this is my words, a little paranoid about your idea and, and sharing it and having control when you're dealing with cyber sinks. And you obviously were up against a lot of other big players. And so this question is from an entrepreneur that it's, who's uh, joined us today around you know, they've got an idea, they've built a, a, a basic, they've got the capability to build an MVP, but in order to go to market, their risk is they may not have the resources to really launch the thing before a larger player comes in and sort of takes the idea or copies it from them. And so, you know, how did you, how did you think about that with CyberSyncs? And, uh, and, and did you ever feel that threat? And if not, you know, why didn't you? And, and then what advice would you give to someone who is feeling that pressure? Yeah, so I definitely felt the pressure of launching something into market in a way that made a robust noise um, that I felt would prevent someone else from doing it. But in all actuality, that's, that's just not the case. Um, you know, competition is just part of life. Um, and I ultimately welcomed it. Um, because what someone else is doing, you know, allows me to see that my vision had, um, was validated. Um, and then you could see what they're doing to, to make what you're doing better. Or, you know, you could say, oh, that's, you know, that's cute. God bless them. That's, uh, you know, they tried to do it. It didn't, it didn't work, but, you know, cool. Um, but I never, you know, I would say for the first four years of me launching cyber scenes, I lived in a period of fear. Okay, now Google's gonna do it. And you have to think about this. When I launched cyber Syncs, there was no iCloud. There was none of that stuff. But in the midst of launching it and four years later, there was something called iCloud that came into the world that synced all of your Apple devices and this, that, and the third. And then you had Dropbox that hit the marketplace that you know, raised a gazillion dollars, all these players that 
played their roles really, really well and ran their race really well. And I had to acknowledge that my race is authentically mine and where I am and what stage I am is where I'm supposed to be. And what somebody else has is for them. So I had to, you know, go through the, the difficult times of realizing that I needed to keep my eye focused on cyber sinks and not, you know, iCloud or Dropbox or sugar sink or any of that stuff. Uh, that's a big, that's a big thing. I think a lot of first time entrepreneurs make, make the mistake of, of kind of keeping their idea to themselves. When in reality, in order for it to get better, you actually have to share it and you have to, you have to take some risk. And there are very, very few truly winner take all overnight markets. Um, and so, you know, thinking about to your point, Hey, let me run my race. Let's make sure that we understand what we can win. And you, know, you can learn things from competitors and from your market, but they also can be unbelievable distractions. Uh, because in your case, you know, you were looking at sub-Saharan Africa and you were playing off of a, a different, a different set of use cases, even though you were inspired by your own, you just changed the market, different market, different opportunities, way more people in um, sub-Saharan Africa than there are in America. <laughs> so, yeah. And then what I had to realize is, is to release the reins of control because a company is like a thumbprint, you know, yes, I'm the founder and my job is to put that initial print in the sand. Um, but then every person that I brought on the team, they had a responsibility to add their thumbprint on top of mine. And that's, that's what made CyberSync so unique and so forward thinking um, and really groundbreaking in, in, um, in many aspects, you know, we patented, I patented the idea before there was anything remotely around internet of things. Like there was no, there was no conversation around inter internet of things. Um, but I had the forethought to know that the internet was one day going to be in your washer and dryer and your refrigerator and your golf carts and your lamps and all of those things. And even your digital camera. So, you know, I spent close to a million dollars on, uh, on intellectual property, you know, patenting those ideas. So now I own intellectual property for them. Got it. All right. So we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to ask you one longer form question that I have some, some speed round questions for you. So here's the longer form one. And, um, uh, it's from, uh, one of our, a member of our audience right now. The, the question is around, you know, being allowed in the room as long as you play, as long as you play along with the rules in the room. And, and how do you, as a, as a black or a minority, you know, founder, how do you navigate the backlash from maybe asserting yourself um, either around diversity and inclusion or, or social or racial, racial justice? Uh, and the references to Michael Jordan getting criticized for saying, hey, Republicans buy sneakers too, instead of stepping out on things. So it's like, if you, if you stepped out, you get, you get backlash. If you don't step out, you get backlash. So how do you navigate that? Um, I think you win when you don't navigate it. I think you win when you stay true to yourself. And everyone who has an opportunity to speak out um, doesn't have a requirement to speak out. Uh, you have 
a requirement to get educated. And once you're educated, then you have a requirement to speak out. Just because I'm in the room doesn't mean that I'm versed in um, knowing what to say. Um, so I may say the wrong thing just because I'm in the room. And a lot of a lot of credence is given to black and brown people who are in the room, and especially and even you know women that are in the room uh, with the roles of being an advocate. And what we have to do is to not convolute the two. Just because you're in a room doesn't mean that you're an advocate. It also doesn't mean that you're equipped to be the leader in that space. So we as, as executives and leaders in our own right have to be so in tune with our ability and who we are to say, I'm standing up with moral authority to say this doesn't work. And not just because it doesn't work for me, it doesn't work for you. And if it doesn't work for you or me, it's not going to work for the greater good because, you know, diversity is not a civil rights issue. Diversity is a moral issue. And if you look at the moral authority attached to it, then you will remove the political um, nature of it. And anytime that you can politicize something, now ego is in it, and now there are winners and losers. And it's not that at all. Diversity is, is, is honoring every person for who they are and what they can contribute, whatever that may be. Um, so I say don't navigate it, but be at a place where you're open to uh, become educated. And then once you have that education, then you dive into it if you feel that you are fully equipped. Cool. Very good. Thank you. All right. So lightning round, you get like 30 second answers. You ready? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's see if I can do that. Did you, given that your, your, um, your, your software, the software engineer you hired at CyberSync did a lot of the software development. Did you have any IP ownership issues with that? Or did you have a contract in place that had you own everything that got built? Nope, didn't have any IP issues in it. Um, had a contract in place that um, said everything that was created was created underneath the company. Got it, cool. Okay, next one. Um, when you think of, a, of having, what does a growth mindset mean to you? Growth mindset means um, the ability to think outside of your uh, direct um, um, advantages. I don't know. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. Um, your direct advantages. So growth mindset means I may feel a lot of pain today, but, you know, a year down the road, I won't feel that pain. Did you raise any, uh, any capital for any of your ventures? And if so, what, um, what was your go-to source? How did you do that? I did raise capital for my first company and my fourth company. My first company, I, uh, I had to hire a CFO because I had no relationships with any investors. My CFO uh, then brought in his relationships to raise a, a seed round. And we raised around $1.7 million um, in 2009, which was in the height of the recession, they gave up like 5% of the company. So it was crazy. 
Um, but I also had a partnership with Sun Microsystems at the time. So that valuation allowed me to justify the raise. Um, yeah, I think that's it. All right, last one. You were 26 years old as a founder. If somebody did the math, I'm assuming that that's the math was done right. Um, ish. Uh, did you have any age? Was there any ageism issues for you at, 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 at such a young age in your 20s starting a company? Uh, yes and no. No, not from um, peers because, you know, all of the engineers that we were bringing on board were coming from banks at the time. Uh, and they were much older than us starting, uh, starting out. And yes, from the media perspective, um, the sad part about it is actually came from a, a black publication who wouldn't give us any sort of press whatsoever until um, Inc. Magazine named me 30 under 30. And then they, they gave me press. Um, they felt that I was too young and undeserving of it. So someone else had to authenticate me in order to, um, you know, get that media coverage. And it sucked. Got it. Yeah. It's, uh... Well, you showed them. Uh... <laughs> Um, well, listen, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us again. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case. And uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.